Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 49 of the podcast, the topic is Living the Future of Work. Our guest is Gary Bolts, Chair for the Future of Work at Singularity University. In this conversation, we talk about how organizations try to channel human energy, but still need processes and practices that can become a distraction. We discuss the concept of exponential tech and the rapid change uh, pace of change. We touch on digital distraction devices, the unbundling of education, the eroding contract between knowledge workers and um, their employers, and indeed the blurring boundaries between learning, work, and leisure. Singularity University, where Bols is engaged, is a learning platform, which is useful because we are all having to think like a network. To succeed, he says, we need a mind shift. I have the enviable role of being able to talk to all these brainiacs in all these verticals who are very, very deep on their particular topics and pull the thoughts out of their brains of, well, what what are the impacts on the the future of work, future of learning, the future of the organization? Those are typically sort of my three passions. Hmm. So exponential technologies for, uh, uh, for you, Gary, what, what, what does that mean? What is the exponential part? So one of the things that Ray saw was going back originally to the microprocessor was he was able to map pretty clearly that there was this curve in the, uh, basically the, the um, XY of uh, the cost and the performance of a particular technology. And so in our human brains, we tend to be pretty linear. We think of change as being sort of this straight line. But what Ray found was that there was an accelerating curve. That is, it wasn't just that microprocessors got cheaper and faster, as they got cheaper and faster uh, every 12 to 18 months. And, the pri- and not only did the, the price double, or not only did the performance double, but the price dropped by half. And so, so you, you, so you get these exponential curves. And so the whole idea was our brains are calibrated for linear change. There's this gap in how rapidly these technologies are changing themselves and how they're impacting different industries and our lives. And so if we can understand how to embrace the difference and then think in terms of how that actually instantiates itself into our institutions, our organizations, lives, and so on, that we can actually not just think of it as disruption. We can understand the mechanics and we can not only adapt, but we can influence it so that it's more beneficial to humans. Hmm. And work in, in all of this, uh, I know that you know, you're know you obviously doing some thinking about what work really is. And uh, it isn't just about exponential technologies. You're very clear about that. What is work, and and is there something in the nature of work itself that is changing, or and is it changing as fast as these technologies want us to change, or is there a lag? You know, this is age old uh, idea that you know technology moves fast, but people move slowly, and at least the systems around them 
Are, are you seeing some of that happening? Uh, or, or would you say that these exponential technologies now become so, such juggernauts that they're actually dragging us along, uh, you know, in a different way than before? So uh, I think it's an excellent question. And there's a lot of different pieces to unpack from it. So first off, uh, I'm actually writing a, a book on, on uh, work and, um, and, I, and I'd start with the past of work. So uh, there's a long history of continual change in how each of us in our societies and economies have thought of work. And uh, based on a variety of different factors from where we're born to how our parents thought about the work and uh, in our communities. And so we've had a you know, very you know, Eastern and Western, um, we've, we've had a, a constant shift in how we think about work, but if there's any one single set of influences, it's the industrial. So the shift to industrial economies and building factories and that sort of thing. We uh, instead we took a whole bunch of practices from that kind of scaled production, and we applied it to organizations. We applied it to learning and so on. So so uh, it's sometimes more challenging to boil down to the basics. So if we're going to talk about just mechanically what work is, it's really just three things. It's our human skills applied to tasks to solve problems. And it doesn't matter if the problem is a dirty floor or a complex market entry strategy for a new product, it's a problem to be solved. And, and we, we as humans, we're, there's a whole bunch of neuroscience and cognitive science around why we're problem solvers, but we're problem solvers. And we have these human skills that we're often not clear on, we don't understand them. Uh, and we build organizations that sort of are sort of the rack that we put um, tasks and processes that we follow. But essentially, that's it. Skills applied to tasks to solve problems. And so what is changing is that in the past, until fairly recently, we put a lot of these different requirements and, and characteristics together. We called it a job. And then we stuck that job inside an organization and we stuck the jobs in a hierarchy inside the organization. And, and that was kind of it. It was a fairly structured, fairly static, long-term construct. Yeah. What has happened as we unbundle work, which is from my friend John Hagel, Lloyd Center for the Edge, uh, former director, the, the, the whole idea is if you take all these different elements, like the skills that you have, the tasks that you perform, the problems that you solve, and you break them all apart, not a traditional job anymore. Ah, well, then things open, open up. There's a ton of possibilities. And so that's why we suddenly talk about the gig economy. That's why we talk about non-traditional work. That's why we talk about the appification of so much work. And yes, it's enabled by technology, but what we often miss is that it's actually the business model of those providing the technology that are actually driving so much of the way that work changes. Because if you were starting an Uber tomorrow, the Uber of something, just any other industry than transportation, yeah. if you're starting an Uber tomorrow, then you would have to, sure, you'd have new technologies to do that, but you have a business model that underlies it. And you could choose to have a business model that actually would make it so that everybody could have well-paid work, or you could make it so that people would have no well-paid work. That's a set of decisions that we tend to overlook when we just focus on the technology. Right. Well, a lot of people are I mean, around this topic, they're scared about robotics or they're assuming that robotics is going to 
take a lot of jobs. How, where are you on that question? Let's go back to our construct. If, if, if you buy that, that work is our human skills applied to tasks to solve problems, what do robots and software do? They perform tasks. That's it. That's what they do. Uh, and so, so the, the design of any technology that is especially focused on trying to reduce the cost of the human footprint on work is essentially trying to find repetitive tasks or tasks that can be broken down uh, that, that can, you can throw automation at. And then uh, there might be other tasks that humans can still perform. Hopefully they can get compensated for, but those tasks, you're going to 10x it. That is, you're going to make it 10 times cheaper, 10 times faster, maybe all of the above. Yeah. So what ends up happening is humans, uh, the, the real issue with robots and software is that they don't take jobs. Humans give them away. It's, it's a human's decision if all the tasks that just got automated add up to a human job. And so that's, again, one of the things that we're missing is the impact of technology and automation on work is not inevitable. It's a set of human decisions. And we can make different decisions. The, the issue comes back to what I was talking about in terms of the pace and spread of change is if you think of basically work markets as a Venn diagram, here's all the skills, remember, it's human skills, and here's all the problems to be solved, the demand. And you think of it as, oh, there's a bunch of people that have the old skills, old skills that we don't need anymore. Oh, OK, they're over here. They're in the red zone. We don't we don't need them anymore. You know, lay them off. There's a bunch of skills that are in demand today. Oh, great. So we'll pay them. They can have jobs. And then there's all these future skills that we know we're going to need. We're going to need a whole bunch of AI programmers. Well, then that's one way to think about how the decisions that people make in work markets are. But there are plenty of economies around the world that don't say that these people here in the red zone are discardable. Instead, they say, no, let's train them so that they never only have the skills that are no longer needed. They always have the skills that are needed in the future. So that's a Do you think there will always be skills needed in the future on the human side, or at least in the foreseeable future? Not, you're not worried that we're running out of skills that we can train ourselves for, where we are better suited as humans than, than some amount of, of, of automation? Again, this is a set of decisions by humans, right? Yeah. So if you look at, so let's take the pandemic, right? So, so what you're talking about is like, so suddenly there's less work available, right? So here's the demand. And if that were to shrink because there's more robots and software doing it, we actually have a perfect example with the, the pandemic shutdown. You know, the decisions that we made about our response to the pandemic were not laws of nature. We were responding to what we were guessing the laws of nature were, but we responded with taking our economies and shutting down certain aspects of them to be able to try to, to flatten the curve of the virus. Think of robots and software as the same thing. It's a set of decisions. It isn't that there is less human work to be done. There's always human work to be done if somebody is willing to pay for it. The question is whether or not you have a zero-sum mentality. And what you're saying is, no, our response is we're going to have less and less work available because we, the humans can't adapt fast enough. If they could, if they could deal with the pace and the spread of change faster, they would always have the skills of tomorrow. If you were working in a mine and you could learn in a day how to be an AI programmer, you would have work tomorrow. But that's not the way that we've designed our system. Well, and I guess that ties into some of the work you're doing, right? It's uh, 
the real issue is the skills issue. How? How? And I, I was just sort of curious on uh, you. You must be engaged on many levels there when it comes to skilling, and upskilling, and reskilling, and uh, de-skilling. I don't know what, what, what kinds of different skilling we have to do here to to pre- prepare ourselves ostensibly, our kids, um, and and our professions. I mean, you could take any profession, right? Even the medical profession, which I'm uh, really interested in at the moment, there's skilling issues and skills issues in every profession, no matter how advanced they were at one point in time. So I guess the real question, and, and I'd be curious to hear if that sort of falls under your remit, is what, what has to change, if anything, when it comes to the learning paradigms to, to either keep up with the speed or actually learn the right things, right? Because it's not just about, you, you said, if you could learn it in one day, well, slightly unrealistic when, if you think of AI engineers the way we think of them in 2020. But on the other hand, hey, there's a cat. Um, some things can be learned pretty fast. Yeah. Other things are about maturity. So how, how can we solve th- that challenge, uh, you know, as individuals, uh, you know, even today and and when we plan for, for things like post-pandemic and post-automation, you know, type type realities. What so what, are, asked, what is your approach there? You've 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 asked the key question because again, pace and spread of change, right? So, and how do we as humans learn? And yeah. the, if if the pace was slower, yeah. and the leap forward was shorter, so if I was a mine worker and instead I need to go and uh, and I need to figure out how to extract minerals. I'm on top of the ground as opposed to down in the ground, then that's a fairly, you know, it's, a, it's not a big jump, right? Uh, but the jump from having been a miner to being an AI programmer, that's you know, that's definitely a big jump. So first off, uh, I don't I don't use the words reskilling, upskilling, outskilling, de-skilling. Uh, that those sound painful, uh, and they sound like the industrial era processes that I think we should lead. They're also for- forcing people to do something that they presumably don't like. Because if you have a skill, you don't want to be upskilled, right? Yeah, yeah. That it's, sounds like violence yeah. to me. It sounds like something done to you. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a it sounds like a surgical operation. Yeah. And in the future, they may be. You may have a new chip. Oh, you were a doctor. Now you want to be a lawyer. Here, just put the chip in, and you're done. But right now, it's not a surgical operation, or shouldn't be. And so instead, uh, and there's a mindset that's behind that, right? Which is somebody from outside is looking at you and saying, oh, you need to be re-skilled. You're, the, you're in the red zone. You no longer have the skills that we want. No uh, you still aren't in the mat. And so, um, so I challenge a lot of that framing just because what ends up happening is we, we tend to come up with these systemic solutions anchored in that kind of thinking that are very mechanistic. And that's exactly what will give us that zero-sum future that we were talking about. If we take a mechanistic approach to this, then we're just thinking of humans as being simply another set of robotic processes. And again, I just reject. So, so first off, what would be, what are we trying to design for? We're not just trying to design for work. So I want to make sure we're sort of, again, opening up the landscape. What we really want is great humans, right? We want great citizens, we're great parents, great, you know, and we want great workers, right? So we want all those things. And then how have we helped to try to prepare people for that? Well, we have we have this industrial era model, right? We, we, have, to, we have to scale training because uh, it's, it's 
expensive. It's a lot of work. I, wa I want to make sure you can read and write and do arithmetic and those sorts of things. And if I don't have a process to do lots of humans going through that funnel, then I'm not going to get a lot of people on the other end that are going to be able to do those things, right? At least if I don't have technology to throw at it. So I'm going to follow industrial era processes. And I'm going to have cohorts of people and I'm going to walk them through exactly the same process and I'm going to test them every year. And I'm not going to let them go on to the next step unless they pass the test that I just gave them. And then I'm not going to let them go into the world of work unless they passed all the tests that I you gave just, them. Uh, you just brought back horrible memories of 19 years of schooling for me. <laughs> like I said, I barely escaped high school. So um, uh, anyway, so if you think about it, then what we're really trying to design for is humans that have a combination of things. So the first thing is uh, agency. And that is a set of goals, things that we want to accomplish in our lives. We all have a lifestyle that we'd like to have. We might want to have families. We might want to live someplace geographically. We, there's a variety of things we want in our lives. Hopefully, we also want to be great citizens, great contributors to an economy, and so on. So there's these goals, but then we need to have the agency and the access to be able to do those things. So now we're talking, now we're, now we're really talking because we know what to design for. We know to design for making tools accessible and opportunity accessible to a wide range of people. We know we need to help them to be sparked by their curiosity, to be sparked by possibilities, to be able to understand what some of the work opportunities might be, and not just work, but other opportunities, hobbies and so on, that can help them to be able to achieve their, their human potential. And, and what are all the ways you can do that? We're learning a ton about how that can happen. But we know that you need to have a bunch of these things all working together. I have to feel like I've got some goals. I've got to feel like the, the goals are achievable. I have to have the tools and the access to be able to achieve those goals. I have to have the support to help me through the speed bumps. And, and then I have to feel like I'm going to be able to be compensated well for the work that I'm going to do at the end of whatever that learning process is going to be. And then I'm going to have a new set of goals so that that will be a continuous process. We know those are all the things to design for. As you immediately would see, there's lots of places where our institutions and our systems are biased against all of those things happening. Well, not only are they biased against them, but I, I, I wonder if you're just, uh, for the sake of expediency, you're skipping a little over the fact that we may not all agree to those goals, right? Because they, they sound wonderful, the things that you have set out as like collective goals, but isn't one of the problems in education that, well, first off, there are so many laudable goals that one could have for education that you possibly can't reach them all. So if you have to choose, then which ones do you choose? And then if we disagree, uh, you know, about what should be taught or what, in, right? So one is if we disagree as a collective about what we all should be taught, that's one thing. And then with the promise of personalization, we all would want to decide and have agency ourselves over exactly what we want to learn. So isn't there still a challenge here that can't be optimized so easily because there are there is a divergence of interest both between the collective, if it ever existed, as in can we even determine what we all want, and then individuals who kind of want to feel and be different and, and you know, like you, don't really feel like you fit into the formal school system for lots of reasons. I, I didn't feel like that as well, but I guess I was more conformist, so I stayed in it. Um, how do we resolve all these issues is what I'm asking you. So uh, the, the wonderful thing about the ways that we, we 
develop, I was going to say design, but by explicit design, the way where societies develop is that, that just like humans, they're complex and multifaceted. What we've been able to determine as humans is that at various inflection points in different societies and economies, and you can't separate them because there's a lot of interconnections, uh, we make a set of decisions. And so, so when you think of it, uh, in many Western um, societies, for, for sure, when we made this shift to industrial economies, we had a big problem. We had largely agrarian uh, economies, and we needed to have economies that were going to adapt to this new model of making things, right? So we made plants and distributed plants, and then we've got to make things. And so over time, we built a set of systems uh, and a set of institutions to be able to deal with those problems. And we had a collective process for doing it. It was really, really messy, but we ended up with these things called schools and we ended up with these things called organizations and we ended up with these things called capital systems. And so we, you know, we've done this before. Like we, you know, what we didn't do was we didn't all talk about really what we were trying to design for. And we didn't always help everybody to understand the system we were trying to design. So these are each important. These are actually doable. They're all solvable. The hmm. first is really for people to understand how systems work. And uh, the reason I focus so much on what we call social capital or impact capital for uh, the past 20 years is if you don't fix at the macro level, you don't change our peculiar form of capitalism and the way that that actually becomes instantiated in a society, then a lot of these things actually continually get the, the negative results. That is, there's a big gap between the people that are successful and the ones that aren't. So these are all solvable problems that we, we actually have a lot of these mechanisms in place for solving them. Different communities and different countries have different approaches. But if you look at the Nordics, you look at Germany, there actually are a set of processes that they followed through that essentially said, oh, you know what? We kind of want to make sure our economies are fairly resilient at the worker level. That is, we kind of don't want people to have mass layoffs, companies to be able to just discard people. And so, so there's tons of hopeful examples. In the same way, there are tons of hopeful examples of countries that dealt with the pandemic in such a consistent and organized way, never perfect, but uh, that actually dampened the impact both economically and, and uh, physiologically, medically. So, so I'm a, a cautious optimist. But I absolutely believe we understand enough about the systems that we need to fix. We understand about enough about the market dynamics that we need to tweak, that these are solvable problems. What is necessary is for us to take the blinders off and understand why the systems work the way they do today and what the enemies of the future, why they want it to stay that way. And it's normally because they're making money and having power off of the way it works. Yeah. So not is, everybody can be successful if you can design it a way that everybody can be successful, but you can optimize for far more humans to do well if you if we if we actually understand those heuristics. This is maybe my ignorance of how Singularity University works, but is there kind of a unified set of concepts that would amount to a systemic understanding that kind of goes through the faculty or the things that are being, you know, is being produced through throughout the processes that you uh, instantiate there, or when you're talking about this understanding, the systemic understanding that is that that we all 
should have. Is that something that you kind of have to build up from scratch, in, you know, in your future of work initiative so that all the, the things there are sort of coherent? Because, you know, systems are advanced and, you know, arguably, is there one sort of system that sort of runs it all? Or, you know, is every national economy like a welfare state its own system and how do they interact with all the other systems? I mean, you know, in systems theory, you know, the Santa Fe guys and others, it can get very complicated if you're bringing yeah. an ecology into this, right? It, systems theory is nice, yeah. but it is for mathematicians. Well, up to a certain point. So first off, I want to make sure I'm being clear, you know, you know, truth in advertising. So a lot of what I'm talking about is not the framing of singularity universe. My framing, it's I want to make sure I'm not making putting it on their shoulders. I actually have a consulting company called Charette, where we dive in on a range of projects, everything from workshops for refugee youth in Amman, Jordan, to advising the ministers of labor and education for countries like Oh, yeah, no, I wasn't trying to make you the representative. No, no, I was no, actually no, no, a little no, bit no, curious. So, yeah. so, so what you're asking for is essentially a grand unified theory of the, of the future. Of well, I'm asking because it, it would be nice to have it. So I'll just tell you what I've, the way I come at this is I believe that there are a set of consistent functions of the way that these variety of systems work. And I've written a series of papers and I've, I've recorded a series of courses online where I explored what I think of as different facets of the diamond. So, so let me just tell you sort of the, the basic elements, but, but to give you how the framing overall for the grand unified theory, it's that there are four domains. There are four domains for the future of work, individuals, organizations, communities, and countries. And so the, so, so, and each of them has a problem statement. But what I find is that over and over and over again, when people tell me about the challenges that they're dealing with or with the future they want to design for, it falls into at least one, if not multiple of these. But they're each different contexts. What you do to try to help individuals to be able to find or create meaningful, well-paid work is a little different from what you do to help organizational leaders to try to figure out how to channel human energy to create value for stakeholders. And that's different for what you do in a community which wants all of its stakeholders in its ecosystem to thrive. And that's a little different from what you do at the macro level for a country or a region in trying to build inclusive economies. And so that's those are actually sort of the four problem statements. Uh, meaningful, well-paid work, channel human energy for the value of stakeholders, Communities want to have all their stakeholders uh, in their ecosystem thr to thrive. And typically, countries want to build inclusive economies. And so the reason I've actually written a paper, I've written a series of papers exploring different facets of those diamonds is that they're different problem domains, but they have many, many similar characteristics. And so mm -hmm. my belief is, yes, you get to pick what you want, you, which door do you want to walk in? <laughs> You know, what, pro what set of problems do you want to sign up for that you're trying to help have an impact on? But I believe that all of those are interconnected and interconnectable. That is, you actually can build a systems approach that, depending upon your priorities, can have an impact on all of them. So I, I'm curious about one thing. When, when you study the future of work, so much of it is about the future, but it's also about the now, right? Because everything that we want, wish for the future 
it doesn't happen if we don't start trying to create it now. But on the other hand, uh, futurism in its kind of historical context is about looking really long term. When you think about the future work, what, what is the time frame that you are comfortable with or find meaningful? And, and what do you sort of as you're looking into that uh, or, or, or looking into the things that are bringing us towards and unfolding that future, uh, w what would that future look like? So I've, I have a couple of heretical things to toss out, and it's, it, it puts me at a significant disadvantage because it basically undercuts you know, a lot of the premise of, of, of my title. So I call myself the chair for the future work, but the truth is I, I actually don't call myself a futurist. Like I don't think about that at all in terms of like the, the long term, uh, the, the time frame often that people like, like Ray Kurzweil and, and Peter Diamandis, I, I think very much about the near future. And that is what are the design heuristics for how we basically want to take what exists today and how we want to make make it better for tomorrow. So, uh, so, so, so the first is I I don't believe that futurism in the context of trying to predict a single future and have people drive towards it is actually gets the kind of change that we want because uh, it tends to it tends to it can be clarifying but it also tends to get people to sort of think that there's only one positive future. So instead, I think I, I, very much in terms of scenarios, and I say there are three futures of work. To your point about the robots and software, there's uh, a, a, uh, a, a job apocalypse, a dystopia, where, yes, the, there's a huge risk that technology takes over and, and more and more human work gets automated and we don't replace it with, you know, with more paid work. And then we don't figure out what to do with all those humans. So we have, you know, massive, we, we, you know, we call it the Elysium scenario. You know, we have this massive split between the haves and have-nots, which is starting. Uh, there's a second scenario, which is an abundance, and that's what Peter talks about a lot. Peter Diamandis in his books of like abundance is, no, 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 AI and all these technologies will create so much work for humans in the future. It will amplify us. It will help us to solve problems we never thought we could. There'll be so much work, there won't be enough humans. And then there's a third, which is both. You get an abundance of opportunity but not an abundance of paid work because we didn't solve the pace and the spread problem. We didn't help those, back to your original question about education, we didn't help those humans to be able to navigate that change and to be able to do the kinds of work that people were paying for in the future. And so again, back to Venn diagrams is there's either a whole bunch of work that evaporates, there's a whole bunch of work that gets created or both. And we can't help humans to be able to take advantage of enough of the future work that we made our economies as inclusive as possible. You know, it's interesting. I'm I'm sort of thinking that you're going to tell me you're you're more a believer in this both scenario <laughs> than in either of the other two. But well, we already have. But both. it is it. Point that out. We already have both right now. It exists. Right. Yeah. Right. But I mean, this scenario of both, where where there isn't just enough time to explore. I mean, it's it's kind of fascinating to think about this in a sense that there could be endless opportunity in the sense that. You know, when you are young and you are daydreaming, you know, I don't know, s sitting down, thinking about what you could do in the future, of course, there are endless opportunity. But when you look back on your life, um, life is bounded and you had to pick some things. So isn't that always going to be the case? So I'm going to go back to uh, my, my ill-spent teenage years when I, when I fell into my, my father's business. So... Um, uh, I want to make sure I'm making it clear. This is he's, he, he thought through a lot of these issues 50 years ago, 
And that's that's why he not only wrote his book, but he updated his book 42 times, uh, 42 years in a row, um, so that it could continually be relevant. But he found uh, a number of things that are very, very true about humans. First is we have each a unique mix of skills and experiences and hopes and aspirations. There's nobody on the planet with exactly the same mix. The second is that all of those are essentially, and this wasn't his language, but I think of them as recombinant. That is, there's so many different ways to assemble. That's why we have an initiative that we call the work genome, is we believe we're about to crack the code on human skills in the same way we crack the code on human DNA. And we're going to realize there are so many different ways that it can be recombinant that the human, the potential of any human may not be limitless, but there's a ton of different, there's a range of different things that every single human can do. And you, you tell me any limitation and I will tell you examples of the third thing that he found out is that if you set your sights really low, you'll probably achieve that. If you <laughs> set your sights really high, you may not achieve that. But if you had set your sights down here, there's a whole delta between what you could have accomplished that you never thought was possible. And so this is part of the opportunities to help every human being to develop those goals, those aspirations those hopes for the future. And they don't have to be that you want to go become an astronaut and be the first one on Mars. Although I don't think that's a bad, if you're a kid, that's not a bad goal. It's a good uh, goal. I can, I can tell you about some astronauts that I know that <laughs> for, for whom that was you know, pretty aspirational when they were kids. But, but that's the whole idea is that you have this gap and it's mostly mindset in terms of what the potential, the possibilities might be. And if your circumstances, your training, your parents, your community all continually dampen those expectations, I'm going to guarantee you, you're going to shoot a lot lower on the ladder than you would, and you're going to achieve a lot less than if you were shooting for a higher level. Hmm. So at the end of the day on the future, even though you're not traditional futurist although i think there are very few left who are futurist in the and the you know predicting the future game um sure. you, are you a cautious optimist then on on what's what seems to be happening around you i mean has has your work with singularity or your consulting given uh, kind of reason to think that we are as a, a race kind of adapting to uh, you know as humans so adapting to to these changes that are happening around us or you know what's your take on that so i'll tell you where i'm hopeful and where where i'm also hopeful but i there's a lot of work to be done <laughs> so uh, i'm very hopeful that it, at the individual level given the combination of tools access hmm. helping people to develop the mindset where they can have agency i'm very hopeful that over and over and over again i've seen Almost every problem you can think of at the individual level is solvable, like over and over again. Tremendously hopeful that humans are massively resourceful, have incredible potential. And, and that uh, in the same way, if you as an individual, if you have to raise your expectations so that you can, you can achieve better, 
we need to do the same thing for for all humans. Is we you have, you have to believe that that um, on the individual level and in an aggregate, we can, we can accomplish a huge amount. So that takes care of individuals. What about organizations and communities, and then let, let, let alone countries? Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So I'll, I'll tell you for each one of them. So with organizations, what I'm hopeful is that we've got some great examples, some poster children of organizations that have been able to essentially create learning, adaptive, agile organizations that are as inclusive as possible and that can continually adapt over time and hopefully still meet the needs of a range of, of stakeholders, not just shareholders, but the What are the organizations you, you sort of put in that category right now? Oh, so there's, there's a, I mean, so if you want to look at just, you know, like purely um, uh, agile organizations, look at, look at companies like Asana, which um, have built um, essentially software uh, to align teams. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's organizations at scale that have done things around inclusivity, um, uh, mindfulness. You know, there's, there's, there's tons of examples. If you take certain lenses, none is perfect because guess what? If there's more than one person in an organization, it's messy because there are humans involved. So, so, um, so but there, what, what we've got is an opportunity to develop a model to, 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 to and the, the adoption of a model where organizations have a range of, sh- of stakeholders that they are trying to optimize for on an ongoing basis, right? So that's, I'm hopeful we can continue to do that. We just need to do it at scale. Uh, the third for communities is there are tons of examples of processes that communities can go through where they can continually build inclusive planning, communications, action to be able to solve specific problems in front of them. We've, we've seen that from a range of communities that are revamping their school systems, communities that are putting in broadband networks, communities that are basically reshaping the economics so that they, they you know, the safety net gets closed up so that more people can benefit. The communities all over the world that have solved those kinds of problems, that just, again, the methodology is not always widely used and communities don't always know what that process is to be able to make it as inclusive as possible. And then for countries, and this is where the greatest work to be done is, building an inclusive economy, we have to actually understand back to the system that the intersection of economies and societies are a set of decisions and and where you basically try to divorce them and let an economy kind of run on its own. That is, so long as you're making money, then the society benefits. Those are the economies that typically run off the rails. That is, they have huger gaps between the haves and have-nots that accelerate. And so you have to have a set of opinions about how you actually work together to be able to solve those problems, especially in a crazy pandemic. But the reason I called this, I wrote a piece back in March, 2020, um, called The Great Reset. The reason I called this The Great Reset is that this is when, historically, we can look back and see we have solved these kinds of problems at scale before. And that's why I'm hopeful. That's why I believe that we can treat this as a reset to take this opportunity to revamp some of these institutions because we must act differently. Hmm. Last, last thing, uh, and it really is the last thing. This is complicated, the future of work. It's not going to be easy to create it. Uh, where do you go and where should people go to track and understand this? So um, I read everything like I could possibly and watch as many things as I possibly can. So I just I'm sort of a voracious consumer of this. So 
Um, there, there are a couple of different. It sort of depends upon what your what your framing is. Like, what do you what do you care the most about? So, um, i you know I've got a bunch. I'm not trying to sell my stuff as a, you know off my courses, but um, I've got nine courses on LinkedIn Learning. With yeah, about a we'll of, we'll link up some of that stuff uh, okay, if you send it to me. Students, so I so I try to help people sort of un break break apart different facets of the diamond. I've written as extensively as I can on this. We do, we've done a, a, a series of conferences on a variety of different issues, but did one on the future work a year ago. Um, and we'll be doing more. We've got, if people feel free to um, sign up on my, my website, gbowls.com, but we've got an initiative called the Work Genome where we are trying to help people to understand this skills le um, lens and, and how they can actually make their own domain. Uh, and then there's there's a just a ton of you know, this great if you if you like you know sort of the news of um, there's a there's a good newsletter um, Axios uh, Futures has a good newsletter on the future of work which is a good distillation of some of the key issues and then we've got a set of threads on uh, the Singularity Hub so so Singularity University you know, now is a big global network uh, and we've got a range of threads where we're continually talking with people to help them to to point them towards whatever facet of the diamond they most want to explore. Uh, just uh, super quickly, if someone wants to engage with Singularity University, how do they do that best? Just sign up, sign up for a newsletter? Yeah, just sign up on su.org. Yeah. And then things will start to happen. They will get information, they opportunities. Engage things can start to happen. <laughs> Great. Well, Gary, I thank you so much for, for this discussion. This was uh, enriching. And uh, I believe the future work, this won't be our last conversation about it, I think. No, not at all. I'm looking forward to more. So no, yeah. thank you. Great, great questions. And I hope okay. it's helpful to people. You have just listened to episode 49 of the Futurize podcast with host Trondarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was living the future of work. Our guest was Gary Bowles, chair for the future work at Singularity University. In this conversation, we talked about how organizations try to channel human energy but still need processes and practices that can become a distraction. We discussed the concept of exponential tech and the rapid pace of change. We touch on digital distraction devices, the unbundling of education, the eroding contract between knowledge workers and employers, and indeed the blurring boundaries between learning work and leisure. Singularity University, where Bolts is engaged, is a learning platform, which is useful because we are all having to think like a network. To succeed, he says, we need a mind shift. My takeaway is that the future of work might already be here for knowledge workers. Some of us feel like we have been living it for decades already. In fact, not much is new for digital workers in the tech industry that change is more profound for non-tech sectors. In fact, the ground might be eroding, but it is definitely not evaporating. Perhaps we should stop talking about the future of work for things that are contemporary. Then again, each person um, experiences this differently, and that might be an even bigger challenge for organizations that now need to personalize their response. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.